Welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. This coming weekend in Amsterdam, Adrian Oanesian will be honored with the 2015 World Press Photo Award for a photo she took of a young boy badly burned in a bombing raid in Darfur, Sudan. We were fortunate enough to have Adrian visit our studio last week, and our conversation with her could not have been more fascinating. We talked about her development as a photographer, how she snuck into South Sudan to begin her career, her project with rebel soldiers in Burma, and about the challenges and advantages of being a woman photojournalist. The conversation ran over our normal time, but was so interesting, we decided to present it in two parts. We hope you will be as captivated by Adrian's experiences and insights as we were. Here's part one. You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Before we begin, your feedback is really important to us. Reach out to us on Twitter at BH Photo Video with the hashtag BH Photo Podcast. On today's episode, we're going to be speaking with photojournalist and recent World Press Photo Award winner, Adrian Oanesian. Adrian is in town briefly before heading back to East Africa, where she's based. Last year, she was one of the very few foreigners to venture into war-torn Darfur, and her work in South Sudan has chronicled the beginning of a new nation and its descent into civil war. Her work also touches upon subjects of maternal and child health and the life of women refugees and soldiers. Today, I'm also joined by my colleague at B&H, writer and photographer Jill Waterman, and our producer, John Harris. Welcome, Adrian, and thank you for joining us, Jill. Adrian, first question, what drew you to Sudan? Well, I think what really drew me there was the Sudanese people. And at that time where I worked in eastern Sudan and then in south Sudan, there weren't any wars where I was photographing at the time. Um, So originally I had a best friend um, also from northern New York who went to the American University in Cairo. Okay. And I had visited her there and we had met Sudanese in Cairo um, who welcomed us down to Khartoum and... I ended up traveling there. I was young. Um, I wanted to see what it was like. And that's where I first met Sudanese, learned about the culture. They're the most hospitable people I've ever met. Um, So when I did finish school and studied photojournalism, that was the natural place to go back because I I knew the people. Um, I enjoyed being there. Oh, so in school, you... Your introduction to the country and the people was where you were still in school. You're still learning photography. Yeah, it was before I even went to photography school. Ah, Um, okay. All right. So you have a history there then. All right. Okay. Yeah, I studied um, cultural anthropology and non-violent conflict resolution um, in Colorado. And then afterwards, I went to school for photography. And did you have a sense that you wanted to get into photography when you were studying that? Or that was uh, not even on the radar? Towards the end of university... Um, I studied abroad in Indonesia, and as part of my thesis there, because I was studying anthropology, I ended up incorporating photographs into my thesis, and those photographs were actually what I used to apply to a photography school um, after I finished. So I did a year ICT, or where did you go to school? At ICP. Okay. Yeah. Adrian, how did those majors that you studied in undergraduate school, um, what kind of platform did they provide for you to jump into photography? 
Well, at the time when I was studying anthropology, a lot of what people had told me was, well, what are you, what are you going to use this for? I mean, it's a wonderful thing. You get to explore people's lives and really pay attention to the details of what is important to people. That's a lot about what anthropology is for me, um, how people give things meaning. And so I think it has actually come become very useful to me over time. Just all those important details of people's lives is what's important to them. And if you can recognize that, um, I think with photography, you know, it's not just about approaching people and, and stealing their photos. It's about having a relationship with those people. And the fastest way to do that is to observe and try to understand who people are. So I think absolutely it's helped. Do you, when you're photographing in those situations, are you looking at the details? Is that something that you uh, gravitate to photographically? I think photographically, but above that, just as a person, how do you shake hands? How do you give someone a hug? How do you serve tea when you do serve tea? How do you do that? Is the sugar separate? Do you use the same spoon in the sugar dish as you do in the in the tea? These are all important things. How do you? What Is there do you a question the about tea? that? I never thought about that particular the, the spoon and the tea and the sugar. Oh, <laughs> I have an answer actually. <laughs> well, like some answer. some some cultures, <laughs> some cultures after like the Ethiopians, for example, and sometimes in Sudan they'll put some uh, sugar water, and so you can actually dip the spoon in the sugar water before you mix it in your coffee or your tea. So. There you go. Yes. You live, you learn. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Something I'm curious about, you take classes, and this is a lot of this is theory, and it's being taught in a classroom environment, and then you go to the other side of the planet to totally different realities. How applicable were the lessons you had in school there when you were in the real life, real situation, and there's a, there's a conflict going on, and people are dying, and it is dangerous, and you're right in the middle of it. Did, did you fly by your guts at that point, or were you going back over your notes from class? <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me one second. Let me check out. <laughs> I don't think it ever hurts to go back over your notes. Um, but I think there's different parts of that. Part of it is I'm an outsider. Um, and it's been something that I get question, a lot of questions about. But then I also struggle with, I get these questions of, are you a human or are you a photographer? Which one are you first? And these settings, violent or not violent, are so complicated. And I know these areas well. I've been working there for over five years. But it's never a simple conflict. And really, at the heart of it, this conflict isn't about me. I'm observing something. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I can't step in. But it often means that I'm not in a position to control things. And I think a lot of photographers, when they speak, they sound bitter about the situations. But I also think that's just that comes out of really understanding that you don't have control over these things. I'd like to be able to step in in some situations. But first of all, that might make the situation worse for other people. That would endanger myself. That would endanger other people who are with me, local or international. Um, at that point, you're no longer documenting. You are participating at that point, too. You are participating. And the thing is, there is a lot of participation. But when a scene 
gets violent and it's not about you, there's very little that you can control in that setting. Um, and also in a lot of these places, it sounds really horrific, but neither of the groups who are fighting want to be responsible or have anything to do with the death of a journalist or an international person in their area. That's not helpful to anyone. Um, in these situations yeah. where I'm photographing, I'm talking about conflicts mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. South Sudan and Sudan. Um, in Somalia, for example, that would be a very different situation because you are actually a target um, as a foreigner, especially as a white woman. And mm -hmm. so you're you're not always neutral. Um, but in a lot of these situations where I have been, where it has been violent, I'm really not part of it. We recently had uh, Vincent Lavray on as a guest on a totally different subject, but he started off in journalism also, and he went off on an assignment and had a gun put in his head. And he said, I'm not putting myself in that situation again. It was a real reality check for him. How do you handle that kind of stuff? I don't know if you've actually had a weapon aimed at you, but you've certainly been around flying bullets. I have had a gun aimed at me. Um, it was unfortunate. But again, it was one of those things that related directly to the setting and what was happening. At the time, it was 2012. I was covering the oil fields in Heglig in Sudan. Uh, the South Sudanese had in, invaded these oil fields. Um, and we had been covering this war. They, they occupied territory for about 10 days in Sudan. And we had been traveling back and forth from South Sudan across the border into Sudan. And everything had been fine the first couple of times we had been up there. We had permission from the military to be there. Um, we had a military escort. And on that day, the South Sudanese military was not doing very well. Um, They're being pushed back. They're having a bad day. And so I was photographing out the window of the car. A vehicle came up, stopped us, rushed over the car, saw that I had cameras, gun to my head. Luckily, I think they were just after the cameras. And yeah, ripped ripped the cameras off of me. Was there anything about being a, a female photographer in that situation that you felt changed the dynamics? That was going to be my that, next that question been, too. Yeah, had you been a male photographer, whether it was well, there were two of us in the front of the car. Mm -hmm. um, one was a male photographer, and it was myself. Mm -hmm. um, I had two cameras around my neck, and they had seen two cameras photographing them. He dropped his camera to the floor, mm -hmm. um, but both of my cameras were ripped off me because that's just what they were after. Right. Um, in that situation, it, it was the cameras. Right. Um, but I do think, in general, there was another situation on the same trip where I was often the one sent to negotiate with the military mm -hmm. because they had to treat me with a bit more respect and a bit less aggression than the men. Mm -hmm. So if there was a setting um, where we kind of had to confront the military and, and put in a complaint that we had been sitting under a tree for six hours and we really wanted to get to the front lines, I was the one who went over to the commander because I'm a lot less intimidating. Um, and sometimes I can control my frustration a bit better than some <laughs> of the men. Um, but so, and that's a situation where I think there's two parts of it first. I know the culture and I know that they won't be as aggressive with me. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a piece of it. Uh, the other part of it was that I do I do definitely um, 
tend to fight aggression with calm. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's that's helpful as well to mm -hmm. a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And taking it a step further, when and I realize it's different in every culture that you'll visit, even between Sudan and South Sudan, but did you have a need ever to kind of hide the fact that you were a woman? Or was it, in this case, maybe advantageous? When I was in Darfur, I was hiding the fact that I was a woman some of the time. Mm -hmm. I was more hiding the fact that I was a white woman. Mm. Um, I think it, it was just as dangerous for my colleague, my male colleague. Um, but I think generally I like people to know who I am and what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And part of that is being a woman. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't like to surprise people with anything. Right. Um, so I think that honesty is the first step. And if, if there are judgments on the fact that I'm a woman, fine. But I think I've, I've often been able to prove just by my behavior that I'm there to do my work. I'm not there to mess around. There are certain situations where, you know, if it's after dark and I know that the rebels go to the fire and drink, I'm just not going to yeah, go there. Right. Um, so, and then I would send my male colleague mm -hmm. um, because you're friends with these people. Mm -hmm. um, but it's just not a situation. First of all, it's not going to be that enjoyable for me to begin with. Right. Um, and second of all, it's just not worth the risk. And I know what I'm there to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to. And with your male colleague, you're working hand in hand, let's say, and, and you you back and forth these situations all the time to see which would be a better person to deal with this situation or with that situation or... I, um, is that true? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that, that comes up in conversation all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's not as though one or the other is better or worse. There are just different things mm -hmm. um, that you're capable of doing. So, I, I, again, I don't, I don't think it's um, good or bad for either side. I think it's just a recognition of you're a woman, so you, you can do all of these things. You're a man, you can do all of these things. And... We'll have those discussions as it goes along. And especially when you're in the field, when you're in, in the middle of nowhere, when you're in these intense situations, it's so important to keep lines of communication open. Like no matter what you're doing, how you're feeling, how your health is, your bathroom activities, if you disappear for five minutes, you need to tell somebody where you're going. You can't just wander off right. to the bush. So I think that's just one of the things that's part of communication. With this colleague that you were working with, how, how did that partnership come about? Was it uh, part of the assignment? I was in Darfur with a, a colleague named Klaus van Jaiken. Uh, he's a Dutch journalist um, and multimedia producer. We first worked together. Uh, we were put on assignment. He hired me, actually, for his production company out of Holland. Um, we had been working in another rebel-controlled area of Sudan, in the Nuba Mountains of South Kordofan. So we were there. I was I was photographing for his company. Um, and while we were there, we we started talking about about Darfur. And I had mentioned it was something that that I had always wanted to do and I had been working on uh, since I got to Sudan, trying to make contacts, trying to figure out basically how to get there and stay safe. And so we just got talking, and that's really when when it started, um, when we started working together. And 
we've worked together throughout um, South Sudan as well. And then this trip uh, to Darfur uh, last year. But um, we're still, even after the, the trip to Darfur and, and an intense month together, we're still very good friends and <laughs> colleagues. So is that prevalent these days for independence more so than someone with a specific organization backing them? I think part of what I've done has been a bit unique in that sense, but I also think it's part of the issue with security and and getting assignments in some of these places because what tends to happen now, and I still work completely as a freelance photographer, um, what tends to happen is I will approach an outlet and say, I'd really like to go to Somalia or I'd really like to go to Darfur and I'd like to cover this or that. What tends to happen is they don't want to take on the risk of sending anyone. So they will say, which is slightly annoying, <laughs> sure, go they'll ahead. say, That's, that sounds wonderful, great story. Uh, send us an email when you're back and show us the material that you got. Which, sure, it's, it's great to get recognition that you're on to a good story. You're basically, you're shooting on spec at that point. That's really what they're asking you to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's extremely frustrating. <laughs> um, so the work in Darfur... I approached everyone about and basically more or less got that response. Um, it was also hard to pitch that story because we didn't really know what we were going to get. Mm. And not only did we not know what we got, we didn't know if we could make it there. Um, and every step we had to analyze whether or not it was safe. So it, it's a difficult, difficult process as a freelancer. And you were provided security by one of the rebel organizations in Darfur at that point? And which one is that? So getting into Darfur, there are multiple different rebel groups that are operating. At this point, there's only one group that holds territory. Mm-hmm. So, and in order to work freely, you kind of have to be in a somewhat stable place. Absolutely. Otherwise... Forget it. You're not going to be able to spend time with civilians, mm-hmm. which is what we really wanted to do. Okay. So we were under the support and guidance of the SLA, which is the Sudan Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. And this is a faction that's led by Abdul Wahid. Mm-hmm. And his territory is really in the middle of the mountains, the Mara Mountains, Jabal Mara. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we were traveling with them. Um, we went in with an independent translator who is a civilian. Mm -hmm. And we also worked with community leaders once we were inside. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're you're hiring, for example, this translator and and person who you went with is somebody you found, you reached out to, you hired. And do you have any support with from the organization? Like, for example, I know the Wall Street Journal, to some degree, you work with them. Do you have any support system from this organization or others? For this trip, we were provided with a sat phone mm-hmm. from Trau, which is a Dutch newspaper. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. <laughs> uh, so we, no. we, were, we were checking in. I can't remember. I think it was once a day we were supposed to be checking in. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we, we found and hired the translator independently. We, we paid him for his work. Not a significant amount, but... He was also Darfuri and was very 
eager to get back into Jebel Mara because he hadn't been there in years. Mm-hmm. Um, so our trip was was really epic in terms of anyone, um, even uh, refugees in Chad, getting back into this area because mm-hmm. it's not easy to travel back and forth. Right. You said you wanted to work with the civilian population, and was that... A, a series or a theme or a goal that you had in mind when you went? Were you, did you kind of know what you wanted to, to shoot and what to look for? And maybe we could again tie this into uh, the, the topic at hand, if, if you could speak on that. Well, absolutely. I think what we did know before we went in is that there were tens of thousands of people who had been displaced. And that is displacement by the government of Sudan, uh, government-backed militias, and also conflict between the rebel group and the government of Sudan. So we did know that. Um, we knew these people had fled up into the mountains for safety. Some of the displaced flee to refugee camps in Darfur. But the problem with the refugee camps is they're in government-held territory. So you're essentially fleeing to a place that's run by people who have attacked your family members, burned your towns, and murdered your sons. So a lot of people also tend to flee into rebel-held territory for a bit more of stability. Um, Or I shouldn't say stability at all, I should say comfort. Um, So we knew that there would be a lot of civilians displaced. Um, Another reason we wanted to focus on the civilians was that I, I think... You know, we see so many images of military personnel and fighting and and all of that. And that's fine, and I think that's important and has a certain place. Um, In Darfur, I wish I had gotten more active fighting because the government denies that activity is happening. So that's when those images are important, when President Bashir says, oh, the fighting is over, everything's calm. And then you can show images of active fighting. That's important. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, it was more to get stories from civilians. And also, when you're traveling with a rebel group, it's very easy to tell their story and to tell the story that they want to give you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely dangerous. So by kind of separating ourselves from the rebels once we were inside, um, it gives the story a bit more legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- and those are the people who are affected. Mm-hmm. And also it leaves space for those people to criticize the rebel group you're traveling with, um, mm-hmm. which is completely reasonable. And doesn't that though, in a sense, um, put more of a focus and maybe more of a danger on you? If you're, if, let's say for example, you're brought in with, with the agreement of a rebel organization and you say, well, you know, I'm not interested in your struggle right now. I want to look at the people who are suffering in between these groups. All of a sudden you're, um, you know, you're denying their story to some degree to, to focus on another story. And they're going to say, well, wait a second, you know, what are you up to? And again, you may be putting yourself in a, in a riskier situation, no? It can be. It yeah. can be, absolutely. But I also think that's part of the honesty that leads up to getting on the ground, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, we had conversations for years about what we wanted to do what we thought was important. Yes, you and your colleague, you and your, your partner. Myself and my colleague mm-hmm. and with the rebels. Uh-huh, okay. They were very, or at least we tried to be very clear on what we were there to do. Mm-hmm. And I mean, also at the end of the day, for the most part, 
the people who are in this rebel group, their families are the civilians. Mm -hmm. So they are actually there to defend their families. Um, But not necessarily. And it is often difficult to really explain to people what a journalist's role is in some of these areas um, because people often don't understand that. Had we been extremely critical of the group that we were traveling with, that probably would be an issue. Mm -hmm. But I think at that point, because this group was the only way to access this territory and the only way to access the civilians, it's better just to leave that untouched. Mm -hmm. And not to say that there aren't stories there, because there absolutely are, but I think if this is the only way to access the civilians and tell their stories, then... Mm-hmm. then that had to be the focus. Um, but going back to your question about the women's side of it, this was this became a huge issue while we were there because we ended up speaking to a lot of women and girls who were survivors of sexual violence. Mm-hmm. And this was interesting because there had been some reports of this happening in Darfur. And one of the things we were told or cautioned about before we got there was that, oh, you're going to have a really hard time finding these women. They're not going to be forthcoming with their experiences. If they are, they're they're not going to want to go on camera or be recorded. Um, And just found the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think it's for better or for worse, but the women who we did meet did want to tell their stories and and did want to go on camera and did want to be seen. And I've actually had arguments with people coming back to the States about that, saying, oh, we should blur these women's faces because maybe they don't want to be shown. And I was actually adamant about showing their faces because, believe me, I had extensive conversations with these women about what we were doing, what the material would be used for, where they could be seen, and they wanted their faces up there. Mm-hmm. So, And putting a face on something in this case, is quite literal, and it makes a big difference, I would say. Absolutely. Reading something in a paper and seeing somebody talking about it. Absolutely. And so I found myself, normally I'm, actually I shouldn't say normally, I'm always extremely concerned and prioritizing um, the subjects that I'm that I'm working with. Um, and in this case, I was actually fighting to to have these women be shown because that is what they wanted. So I'm assuming the arguments you had were with uh, people in the media in the U.S. And that sort of begs the question, Are there is there a way within your work to get some sort of verbal um, agreement from the subjects that, that would sort of supersede this disagreement with the editors? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the most important thing is and often a difficult thing in these places where they don't have access to any form of media outlet. No phone networks, no internet. Right. I mean, there's no right. electricity. So explaining to someone what their image will be used for, I can I can do the best that I can, but to get a true understanding is difficult. And sometimes it's difficult to even know if, if that's if understood. That, you, you're talking about the women were actually very agreeable and wanted to get their stories out to you. Do you think it had to do with the fact that you are a woman? Do you think they would have had the same response 
if a man had approached them, a, a male photographer, maybe, maybe your, 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 your colleague did, I don't know, but do you think that they felt safer with you? To a certain extent, possibly. Even if they feel just as comfortable around a man as a woman, I often ask men to leave the room, especially when I'm taking photographs. Because honestly, you just never know how people are going to feel. And sure. sometimes maybe they don't even know how they're going to feel. Um, so I think it never hurts to try both. Um, but I, I like being alone with people regardless of, of who they are, what their experience is. I think, I think there's something, um, powerful about that. I think there's more of a relationship when you're the only two in the room. Um, but absolutely there were, there were times when even class, was saying, you know, I'm I'm just going to step out. I'm going to remove myself. Um, because you do want want people to feel free to tell their stories. So whatever that context is that will help them, then then you should try to be supportive of that. Um, and I and I do think uh, yeah, having having women show me wounds on their body or something like that. I I don't know if they would have been comfortable doing doing that in front of in front of men. The topic here is women in photojournalism. And there's a lot of talk about and a lot of justified that, yeah, women do have quite often or a lot more to fight through to get where they want to go compared to a guy. But at the same time, there are certain things that you can do. You could take advantage of these, these attributes or, or skills, whatever, um, and make it work for you that way. And I think that's something that anybody who's looking at this subject has to say, okay, here's what I have. I have these talents. I have these tools. I have a personality. I have a certain way of going and breaking down walls and connecting with people. And I don't think it matters too much whether you're male or female. If you feel confident about yourself and you know what you're doing and you have a purpose and a goal, you can crash through a lot of those walls. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I just think it comes down to who you are. But on the other hand, I think for a lot of women in this industry, and maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, um, but I think it also has it comes down to being comfortable surrounded by men as well um, to be able to go into a room full of military commanders and stand your ground. Um, I think oftentimes we can be our worst enemies um, in that situation. So I just think it does, maybe it takes a bit more confidence for a woman to be able to do that, whereas a man would just walk into that room and not think twice about it. Um, I saw a photo series recently <laughs> where all of the men in the room had been photoshopped out of the image. Did you see oh, this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that really explains it all. A man wouldn't think anything about walking into this room, but, but I do, I realize that I'm the only woman there and sure. Sometimes that can work to my advantage. Sometimes it can work to my disadvantage. I think maybe women do have to try harder to be tough. Maybe that's not naturally was, our thing. Do, do you, do you think it was a learned um, skill? I mean, do you, do you, can you look back earlier in your career to see a situation where, where you, you felt intimidated and you backed down where now with experience and time, that's not an issue? Oh, yeah. yeah. I am... You didn't hesitate on that at all. Well, oh, I mean, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I think we can all say the same. I mean, I don't think men in a room full of military 
fighters, I don't think there's too many, without experience anyway, there's too many people that wouldn't be intimidated. But that's the thing. I, I also just think it's experience yeah. and it goes back to confidence. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if either of those things are necessarily tied to your sex. Right. I think it's a lot of it's experience. Um, and yeah, having having confidence around around people. It's interesting too working in some of the areas that I work because race comes up so often. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you do stick out like a sore thumb in where you work. No two absolutely, ways about it. <laughs> absolutely. And it, it's kind of tied to the issues of gender that we're talking about because it's one of those things that exists. And denying that it exists is the worst thing you can possibly do. And where I work, it, it comes down to tribe. It comes down to shade of your skin. And we're talking about people of literally a rainbow of, of skin colors. Um, and myself, I'm a white woman, and that does give me certain privileges where I work. And why is that? Partially it's because I'm not tied to these conflicts. I'm not from one tribe or the other tribe. I'm not Kenyan. I wouldn't be mistaken for being one of those tribes. So race, not just black and white, but race in terms of tribe in Africa is so significant. And it's always something that's discussed um, because so much conflict uh, surrounds your, your tribe or your ethnicity or your race. So I think it's really just being about honest, honest about who you are and the significance that has um, and also being honest about the disadvantages that gives you. And just to have an open conversation about that is extremely important. Okay. Originally photographer and former director of photography at the Miami Herald, Maggie Steber, was to join us on this episode, but at the last minute she was called to help a colleague and could not make it. She did, however, send a statement she asked us to read on air. John, could you read it for us? Thanks, Alan. Uh, this is from Maggie Steber. I'm happy that Adrian will be there to be interviewed, and I think she can speak for a whole new generation, which I support with all my heart. It is their world. They are fresh and committed, and I watch them with wonderment and love and encourage them all I can. I'm so lucky I still get a lot of work, and I do not take it for granted, but I also mentor young photographers all over the world, often for free, because I believe in them, in photography, and in their commitment. People like Adrian help people like me keep faith that photography can shine a light on the world's ill, but also on its beauty, and she has done so with her work. She has shown us the resiliency, courage, and strength of people who have had to flee and live in a cave. They are so beautiful. Thank you, John. This is a really good spot to take a break. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jill. Stay tuned for part two of our conversation with Adrian, and remember to rate us and review us on iTunes. 